Uh, <clears throat> a lot of you that that know me uh, or have known me for a while, uh, maybe if you've been here and you've, you've heard this at different times, I make mention of this every so often, not a, not a whole lot, but uh, a lot of you know my brother Jed died in a car wreck when he was 29 years old. And so my brother, uh, this happened 16 years ago. Uh, he died uh, tragically in a car wreck. Um, what you may not know is Jed was 15 months younger than I, right? So he was my brother, but he was the closest. I have an older sister and a much younger brother, Jeremiah, but Jed was the closest. He and I, 15 months apart. And so growing up in my life, he was the best friend in my life. Everything we did, we did together, right? Uh, I don't have any memories from being a child where Jed wasn't there. 15 months younger, you don't remember any, any different. Uh, in school, we were always one grade apart, so he was one grade behind me. And so that meant like sports, growing up, all those things, we were on the same team together. All those that go, I remember uh, flag football, my first touchdown pass, I threw it about two yards and then Jed ran it 90 yards. And I like to say that I threw that touchdown pass and it was kind of like, here you go. And he took off. Uh, but everything, like everything he did up until the time I was, uh, say, 30 years old when Jed passed away. Um, he was at my wedding. Every major thing in my life is my best man. He was there when my son Asher was born. Uh, he lived with Joanna and I for a little while, all those kind of things. And so just thinking uh, all that, uh, what you wouldn't know about Jed because you never met him is uh, he loved the Lord. He knew Jesus. Uh, Jed also knew he had made a lot of mistakes in his life at different times and done some done things. And so as much as anybody I knew in my life, he had a very sensitive heart to the grace of God for himself. And he really knew that. He also was an incredibly uh, generous person. Uh, the whole time, uh, uh, my brother, different jobs, working, whatever, never had very much money, never hit it with some job where everything came together. He usually had about what was in his pocket. That was about the money he had total. And, uh, somebody would come to Jed and go, Hey, they're going to turn off my, my lights this week. I got to pay my light bill. I need $50. He'd go, here you go. And then he'd give it to him and then realize that he can't pay his own light bill because he just gave away the last $50 he had, but he didn't think about that. He just gave to whoever, whenever, that's the way he was. And so, uh, you know, all of those reasons uh, uh, are the reason that my, my uh, son Jed is named after his uncle Jed, uh, for good reason. Jed, uh, my Jed was born a month after Jed died, and so it seemed appropriate that he would be named Jed. Uh, but I remember when Jed died sitting, it's funny the things that get crystallized in your memory at different times. When Jed died... Uh, I remember being around the funeral and all the stuff that's happening. I remember sitting at the table with my, at my parents' house with my cousins. I call them my super cousins. Uh, Samuel and Ted are my super cousins. They're literally super cousins, and I made the term up, but I'm sticking with it. Super cousins in that our mothers are identical twins. And so they're like half-brothers and sisters genetically. So I call them super cousins. I don't know if that's a legit thing, but I'm saying it is. Uh, but they're also super cousins because they're just really, really great people. But I remember sitting there with Ted and Samuel, whose father had passed away years prior. He's a pretty young man. My uncle uh, died. And, and my cousin Samuel said to me, he said, you know, this year there's going to be a lot of times you grieve and there's going to be all these things that come flooding in and memories that come back. And some days will be really good and some days will be really hard. And he said, but the one piece of advice that I would give you is when those memories come flooding back, write them down. And he said, because over the years and over time, you'll start to forget things. You don't think you will, but you will. And he's like, there's things about my dad that I don't remember that I wish I could remember. Or I wish I would have wrote down. And I went, okay. And I remember Samuel telling me that. And so I did that 
for about a year and a half. Every time something came down, I started to write it down. And I'd write down all these memories. And after about a year and a half, I decided to take all of it and put it together in a book. And so I made a, a picture book with all my writing and all my memories. And I've had it bound and I made it and I gave it to my, my brother and my sister and my parents and a couple of Jed's friends and, and my super cousins. And we all, I think there's about seven of them. And we call it the book of Jed. And it's about this thick and it's filled with pictures and all this stuff. And so every year on August 18th, the day that Jed died, and then February 25th, the day that Jed was born, I sit down and I read the book of Jed. I read the whole thing. And I go through it and I look at all the pictures and I get to the very end and I read his obituary on the last page. And then across from that, I read in his own writing from his journal about desiring to see the glory of the Lord. And I remember, and I remember because I loved my brother and I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget all those wonderful things that God gave me of having a brother that was 15 months younger that did all of it with you. But I remember as I get to the end and it's always hard to read the very end and I get to the end, but I do it so that I remember that I'm going to see him again, that he knew Jesus and he loved Jesus, and that he's in glory now, and I'm going to get to join him there one day. And so I do that twice a year, birthday, and then the anniversary of his death, about six months apart, because I don't want to forget. And I tell you that to tell you this. We get to this passage today, and Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper, and then he's going to say, do this in remembrance of me. And I think about how much I don't want to forget my brother, and all the good things and the blessings that God gave in that. But how much more do we not want to forget who Jesus is and what he's done for us? And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I want us to try to look afresh at what it is that he's telling us to do. As he institutes the Lord's Supper. He institutes communion that we do here each and every week to seek to be reminded of who Jesus is. And so the way I want us to look at this is first, I just want you to consider that God has a history of doing this throughout the Bible, telling us to remember. He tells us to do this. And there's some important background to what happens at this meal that we need to have that God has been telling us to remember. And so that's the first thing I want us to consider, kind of this history that God's telling us to remember and doing that and why he tells us that. Then secondly, what Jesus is doing here with the Lord's Supper, why the Lord's Supper like this. But then lastly, how do we use this and continue to go forward and, what, and be uh, faithful to what Jesus is telling us to do? And so let's just start with the big picture, the history of God doing this. And there's some important background here. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the Gospels in chronological order. Last week, we were in John chapter 13. And we said where Jesus washes the disciples' feet in the upper room and they gather together. In John's Gospel, we talk about the upper room discourse, John 13 and 14. He's telling them all these things. And there's a, uh, when we start to think about the harmony of the gospel, sometimes you got to jump around. You notice today we read from, from Luke chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the institutions of the Lord's Supper, but, but John does not. He doesn't have that part. And so as we look at that today, we're going to see that. And so that's kind of why we're jumping to Luke. But the best that we can tell is they go into this upper room, they get it all set up, they get in there, and then Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper after that. And so that's why we did the washing of the feet last week. And now we're kind of jumping. We're kind of doubling back a little bit because in our reading today, it tells how he told them to go find the place to have it and where they went. And so they did. And so if you look at this, pick up with me in Luke chapter 22, verse 7 there. 
Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where would you have us to prepare it? And he said, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And then he went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at the table with the apostles, with them, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Right? So that's why we call it the upper room discourse. Right? Go find this upper room. It's in Jerusalem. You'll be there. They set it up. They go in. Jesus washes their feet that we saw in John 13. And then they sit down to have this Passover meal. And so it's important for us to think about this for just a second. As Jesus sits down, he tells them to prepare it. He tells them to get it ready. And then he sits down and he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And so they're sitting there to celebrate the Passover meal that they would have done each and every year of their life as Jewish men. And so it's important for us to have a little bit of background on what is happening as they do this, right? You may have a good idea of what the Passover is and how that fits, but it's important background here. And so if we go back, they're sitting together, they're having this meal that they would have done every year. That's why they've come into Jerusalem at this time. It's the time of Passover. But the Passover meal itself was something that God instituted as a reminder to Israel some 1,500 years before when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, right? So you can go back and you can read about that in the book of Exodus. All that takes place in Exodus and how God does that. And if you go and you read it, I'm going to give you just the big high points real quick so we have a handle on what's happening here with Passover. But if you go and you look, it says uh, the Passover coincides with the last of 10 plagues that God sends on Egypt. And he does this kind of as a polemic, that is a, an attack on the gods of Egypt to show them that he alone is the true and living God. And so it goes through and Moses goes, and maybe you know the story, or maybe you've seen the animated kids movie, but he goes and he, he tells them and, and he does the 10 plagues and we get to the end. And what happens is the last of the plagues is that God says, uh, institutes this time of Passover. And so what he tells them is that they are to take a spotless lamb. So the people of Israel are to take a spotless male lamb that's one year old and bring it into their house on the 10th day of the month. And then they are to keep it there until the night of the 14th. And then that night at twilight, they are to kill this lamb. And then they are to go outside. They're to drain it in the way they would to fix the lamb for a meal. They take the blood. They're to rub it on the sides and the top of the door, the lintel of the door. So put the blood on the side and the top of the door of their house. And then he tells them to go in and roast the lamb, cook it in a certain way. And then to eat this meal with their, their shoes on and their belts tightened and they're ready to go and eat it in haste. And that's the directions he gives them. And then he says this, he says in Exodus chapter 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you, destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God does exactly as he says, but do you hear what he says there? He says he's executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. 
And so what he's saying is, you either trust me and my provision and what I'm doing, or there's going to be this judgment that comes and the firstborn in every house will be killed. And so he gives them this instructions. And so they do exactly as he does. And God does as he says he was going to do. And he sends this judgment on the land of Egypt and it comes in. And the firstborn of all those that don't have the blood of the lamb on their door are killed. And those, the the Israelites that follow what Jesus says, he spares them. He passes over them. And in so doing, he institutes this time. Now, if you know the story after this, Pharaoh lets the people go and he lets them leave and they can go out and they leave and they go out. But then God says, I want you to do this every year in remembrance of what I've done, right? I saved you in this way and I want you to continue to come back and be reminded of what is true and how I've done this and how I've saved you. And so God delivers them and they go out and then they make a memorial of this each and every year, right? So that's rewind 1500 years. Now skip back to this night with Jesus. Verse 17, they gather together in this. And it says, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he takes this and he says, divide it among yourselves, right? So they're celebrating the Passover and Jesus says, take the cup and do this and follow the instructions. And what that tells us right there in verse 17 is that as they're taking this meal together, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, that Jesus is the presider over the meal. And so each year when you did this in remembrance, you would have this meal, but then you'd have the presider or the person presiding over the meal who would tell the story that goes with it. Because when God instituted this, it wasn't just get together and have a meal. It was get together, have a meal, kind of act this out again, go through these things so that you're reminded of how God saved you. And so Jesus here is the presider. He's presiding over the meal with his disciples And he's explaining the significance of the meal. Now, all these guys would have had this before. They would have done this. They may have done this with Jesus before in the Passovers in the previous years. And so they know the words. They know how this goes. They know what this is about. They know the significance. And so the presider would take the bread and they'd take the bread and they'd say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our forefathers ate in the wilderness. But God saved us and he brought us through this. And so you would eat the bread as a remembrance of what God had done at the Passover. And that's what the presider would say. And then they'd take the cup. And the cup was often red wine to symbolize the blood of the lamb, but the blood on the door. And you'd take it and you'd drink it at different times. And you'd have different parts that you say that remind you of everything that God did in the original Passover some 1,500 years before as he saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. As God delivered them out. And they would have known all of this because God had instituted that some 1,500 years before to do this in remembrance so that you don't forget. So that the Israelites would not forget that God had saved them, that it was his doing, that it was his provision that brought them out. And so this is all of what's happening kind of in the background. And I want you to think about that, that God does that. And he does it in a whole lot of different ways in the Old Testament. He does it in a lot of ways through scripture that he tells us to do things in remembrance, to be reminded of them because he loves us. Because he doesn't want us to forget about what is true. I was thinking about my cousin saying to me, write down these things because you don't want to forget them. You don't want to forget your brother. And God's saying, do these things. Celebrate this meal. Do these in this way. Have these celebrations so that you don't forget who you are and who I am and the way you got here. And so that's what they were doing on that night. God has a deep history of telling us to remember. 
But what about the Passover itself as Jesus sits down and celebrates it with them? You have that background. and It's really important background to what's happening here. And so here they are celebrating this Passover meal and there's this expectation. They know what's coming. The presider's going to say the bread of affliction. He's going to go through these things. But look at what happens. Jesus is operating in a totally different way that they still can't grasp. I've been saying this all the way through the gospels, right? Jesus has told them he's going to die. He's told them all these things. They can't hear that because they see the Messiah as a political figure who's going to come and overthrow governments and be a ruling king. And so every time he says those things, they all it goes right over their head. Or like in Peter's case, they rebuke him and tell him it's not going to happen that way. And so we've seen that all the way through. Same thing kind of happening is still in the background here. But imagine you're the disciples sitting there, having gone through the Passover however many times in your life. And then you get to verse 19 here. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they are eaten, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that as they're sitting at the table, they're reclining at the table together, there were some looks of like, What did he just say? What is he talking about? Right? I can see the disciples cutting their eyes at each other and kind of going, he just said, this body, this, this is my body instead of the bread of affliction. All of a sudden, there's a monumental shift in what Jesus is saying. And I'll tell you, I don't think the disciples in that moment had the ability to even comprehend fully what he was saying. In fact, I think what he said to them last week that we looked at in John chapter 13, before he washes their feet, he says, I'm doing this to you now and you won't understand it until later. I think the same could be said with what he's doing with the meal. I'm instituting this meal now, and you're not fully going to get this quite yet, but I'm telling you. You know, what we know is that after Jesus' death and then his resurrection, he comes to his disciples, and in Luke chapter 24, it says he sat down with them, and he explained everything in the Bible that pertains to him. And then they all went, oh, okay. But I think in this moment, there were probably a lot of confused looks. Like, what is he talking about? What is he doing right now? What is he saying? And there's this huge shift that is taking place in that moment. But what he's telling them, the shift that's taking place is he's saying, just as God told you to remember what he was doing for Israel in those times and down through the ages of how the blood of the lamb on the doorpost saved you by putting your trust in God's provision. He says, I too now have come to take your place. I have come to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I've come to rescue you from sin and death itself. Now, they don't get that. And you go, well, where does he say that? He just says, this is my body and my blood. Does he say all that right there? And I think he does. I think he actually does. Look at verse 19 and 20 again for just a second. He took the bread and he's given thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he'd eaten, this cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And notice he says that twice, for you. This is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant given it for you. And in both cases, that word that he uses for, right? Sometimes for can have a couple different meanings. Sometimes it means in response to or because of you or there's different ways that we have that. But in this place, what Jesus says is it means instead. It means in your steed. I'm doing this instead of you. My body broken instead of your body being broken. 
my blood shed instead of your blood being shed. And he's saying, instead, in your place is what I'm doing. And he starts to institute this time. And I want you to think about the connection with the Passover and why he does it here. Why like this? Why over this meal? Why in this way that he says it? You know, when you go back and you see that God's provision for the people in Israel was the blood on their doorpost, right? It's kind of a weird thing that God told them to do. You're going to take this lamb and you're going to cut its throat and you're going to drain the blood and you're going to rub the blood on the door. And if you do that, I will pass over. What he was saying is, if you will trust me, if you will transfer your trust to me, you will trust me over the gods of Egypt. You will trust me over you trusting yourself, right? God tells you to do something. You go, I don't know how that works. I'm not sure that that makes sense. You have a choice to make. Am I going to put my trust in my own intellect and my own understanding? Or am I going to trust in what God tells me? And that's what was happening there, right? And so the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And so every single person on that first night, the very first Passover, every house, there was either a dead lamb or there was a dead firstborn in the house. In every single case, it was either they trusted in what God says or there was judgment that came. And so what Jesus is saying and the connection that he's making here as he sits at the table, he says, I am the lamb that you've been waiting for. I am the one that has come to rescue you and to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And just as God passed over and you escaped his judgment at that time, 1500 years ago, now the only way that you can stand before God is through me and what I do for you. And he's showing them and he's making this shift and he's bringing them into this. Now, if you go back to the beginning of John, we talked about this a year and a half ago. I don't expect you to remember that. But in John, in the very beginning, we have John the Baptist who bursts on the scene. And he's the one that's preparing the way, making the path straight. He comes onto the scene and he's proclaiming the time is now. The Messiah is here. He's come. And that was John's job to show up and proclaim that Jesus is here. But do you know what he says? Do you remember what he says the first time that Jesus shows up? He turns and he looks at him and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he proclaims right there through the Holy Spirit. This is the one. This is the one whose blood and body is going to save us. He is the one that's going to end all sacrifices, who's going to put it all in its perfect place. And so when Jesus sits down to celebrate this meal with them, he says, my blood for you, my body for you, in your place. And they all go, what? What is he talking about? They still don't understand that he's going to die. They still don't get it. And I'm guessing at that moment, there was a lot of things that they were struggling with. They're still thinking Jesus is going to overthrow governments. They're still thinking he's going to be the king in a few days. And he's going to be ruling and reigning. But what they don't see is that he is the king and he is going to be ruling and reigning. But he's also the suffering servant that came to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so he says, this is my body given for you in your place. This is my blood shed for you in your place. And he's pointing them to this reality. So why does he do it with Passover then? Right? This was this memorial that had been in place for 1500 years. Why does he then change that? Right? It's something they've been doing a long time. That's a big deal. You're taking a lot of tradition and a lot of things and going, no, 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 now it means this. And that's what he does here. And so why does he do it like that? And I think what Jesus is teaching us is he's pointing us to this has always been the plan. 
from the very beginning that when God created the world, that he knew that in allowing us to have real choices with real consequences, that we would rebel, that we would rebel against our creator, that we would rebel against him. And he knew that the only way to bring us back into the very thing that we were created for is if he comes himself and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know why I say that? Because the Bible says that. The Bible says that's exactly what God's plan was and he knew from the very beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 that Dan read to us at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Do you hear what that says? Before the foundations of the world, he knew that Jesus was going to come to lay down his life for us. And so think about what that means. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and he told them to do this thing and he instituted this time, he knew that this was a signpost pointing ahead to Jesus and what he was coming. It's not a happy coincidence that it lines up in those ways. God was planning all of this since before the foundations of the earth. So I told Eve when they sinned, one of your descendants is going to come and crush the serpent's head. That's why I said to Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. So I said to David, there's going to be a king that comes in your line that will rule forever. All of these things were pointing ahead to Jesus, every single one of them. And so when Jesus sits down and he says, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood shed for you. What he's showing us is that every deliverance, every return from exile, every story of redemption, every time that there was ever a sacrifice, it was always pointing ahead to Jesus and what he would do. And that's what this means when he says, do this and remember it's me. It's the greatest truth in all the world that God himself came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so when he institutes this and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Continue to come back to this over and over because you are prone to forget. And this is the most important thing there is in all the world. There's no way to overstate it. There's nothing I can say that's too big. That all of it from the foundations of the world was coming to this. When I think about that, I think about Jesus sitting down and saying, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've been waiting since before the foundation of the world to lay my life down for you. You know, at Christmas, when we we sing the songs and we talk about the incarnation and Jesus coming and we tell the story and the shepherds are out in the field and they say, he's born, he's here. And the skies part and you know what happens and they start singing. It says a multitude of heavenly angels starts to sing. Because all the heavenly realm has been waiting since before the foundation of the world for Jesus to come. And then he comes. And then when he sits down to eat this meal, he goes, I've eagerly desired. And this is what it's all been about. And now I'm going to do this thing to bring you back into it. And he chooses Passover, I think, to show us to pull all those strands together. This has always been the plan. This is where this always led. 
This was always the point of the Passover lamb. To point to me the spotless, perfect, sinless sacrifice that's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper. He makes this incredible shift in all these things, showing us how Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross is the most central truth in all the world. It's the most important thing there is. And so the last part here is, well, what do we do with that? How do we go forward when we think about the immensity of what that means? We do exactly what Jesus says. You do this in remembrance of him. So that's why we celebrate communion here each and every week. That we want the gospel to be central in everything we do. That Jesus has taken our place and he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we get up and we go, yes, and that's right. And then we get up and we forget it. And we need to be reminded over and over again. And we go, yes, that's amazing. And then we do it again and again. And then it starts to become kind of ho-ho. Yeah, yeah, I got it. And it doesn't land on us the way it used to. But we need to be reminded again and again. I had a professor who used to say, why do you think God gave us four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all telling of Jesus' life. He's like, because we need to hear it over and over. We need to read it again and again and again. And yes, there's different perspectives and different things they draw out, and God inspired them in that way. But it's important for us to hear it over and over and over again. And so we say, well, how do we go forward? Well, we continue to take the Lord's Supper. We continue to make it central. We continue to come back to it and be reminded of who we are in Jesus and what he's done for us. But the second thing I'd say is, is I hope you think of it bigger than just that. It's not just when we gather together in this place. We do it each week. Some churches, it's once a month or once a quarter or whatever that looks like. And you take communion. That's a good and wonderful thing that God has told us to do and he's commanded us to do and we should do it. But I would say it's bigger than that. We talk here about being gospel fluent, that the gospel is so part of who we are, that we so understand that everything that we have and everything that we are is through Jesus and what he's done for us, that we want to be fluent in the gospel. We want to remind one another daily what is true about us in Jesus, right? Think about when we do a uh, child dedications. We just did one. We're going to do a couple more here, a lot more all sorts of babies here, which is great. But we read from Deuteronomy 6 where it says, Remind your kids, tell them as you go and as you stand up and as you walk and as you go on the way. And that's true. That should be true of all of us as God's family. We should continually be reminding one another of who we are in Jesus because we are prone to forget and we are prone to put our hope in other things and things, the, the, the struggles of life kind of push in on us and we need to be reminded of what is true and we need to say that over and over again. We need to do this in remembrance of him that we see it afresh each and every day. And I pray that that would be what's true of us as a body of believers, that we take the communion and we exalt over who Jesus is and what he's done, but we also do it in each and every day of our lives that we speak the truth to each other, making much of who Jesus is. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you've done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We thank you that before the foundations of the world that you knew what it would take to come and to bring us back, to redeem us, to bring us into that relationship, and that you have chosen to do that on our behalf, that even as we read here about Jesus in those last moments and as he goes to the cross, that he was choosing to do so, 
You're choosing for, for your glory to show us what you are like and who you are. And you're also choosing to show us how much you love us and what it means for us. And we pray that we would see that afresh each and every day. Lord, remind us when we are forgetful, when we forget these things, help us to see it afresh. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.